This is Cashflow Ninja, episode 28, another Wisdom Wednesday. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Now, here is your host, MC Laubscher. Hello everyone, MC Lobsch here and welcome to another Cashflow Ninja Wisdom Wednesday episode with me. Last week I touched on qualified retirement plans in episode 26, the case against qualified retirement plans. Today we tackle the topic, is your home an asset or a liability? And we have a discussion on home ownership in general. As with all our other episodes of our podcast, the goal is to really challenge your thinking and again, I am not asking you to agree with me. I am, however, asking you to keep an open mind, listen to a different viewpoint, do your own research, and most importantly, think for yourself and form your own opinion. Today's question evokes a very emotional response since it is such a sacred financial cow. As I've mentioned before, one of the reasons I think this evokes an emotional and not a rational response is the years of programming and propaganda that we've been fed about home ownership by many elements in society. Let's just name schools, media, corporations, financial institutions, and government. And how you know that it is programming and indoctrination is if you get angry when someone has a different opinion. It's not rational, it's emotional, and that's a programmed response. And secondly, most of the Western world, and especially Americans, save almost all of their money either in their home or qualified retirement plans, such as 401ks, 403bs, and IRAs. A home is usually the biggest investment that people will make in their lifetime, so they don't want to hear anything other but how great of a decision it was. So by questioning these two sacred cows, your home and your retirement plan, or merely examining this existing belief, you are a giant turd in the punch bowl at any party. Now, good ideas hold up to scrutiny and critical examination, so if this is really a no-brainer and something that is self-evident that a house is an asset, why can't we have a non-emotional discussion about it, looking at facts and arguments? So discussing this is obviously going to be a tough job because I have a viewpoint and my own opinion about this, but I'll try my best. So full disclosure, I really love real estate and as an investment asset clause. I have interest in real estate. I have a current real estate broker's license. My license is in a holding, so it's not active. And I'm not a member of the National Association of Realtors, but I have been in the past. So we started with a question, is your home an asset or a liability? Now, when we try to address that question, first we need to look at what our understanding is of an asset or a liability. I'm obviously a big fan of Robert K. Saki, the author of the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, And I love the rich dad, poor dad philosophy and viewpoint on this. Robert Kiyosaki also said the biggest thing keeping people poor and middle class is that they do not know the difference between an asset and a liability. The rich do. So he puts it really simple that an asset puts money into your pocket monthly and yearly, and a liability takes money out of your pocket. So since cash flow is the theme of the show and the primary outcome and goal of any investment, 
not capital gains. This is what I'll use for a foundation in this discussion. If your house is taking money out of your pocket every month and not putting money into your pocket, it's a liability. It's not an asset. Now, there are situations where your primary residence can be an asset. If you, have, for instance, have a three-unit building where you live in one of the units and you rent out the other two, and it puts money in your pocket every month and every year, that is obviously an asset. Single-family homes usually take money out of your pocket in mortgages, taxes, insurance, home association fees, if it's applicable, maintenance and repairs, and other costs associated with owning a home. Remember, we're not hoping that the home appreciates because that would make capital gains the primary goal, and that's an uncontrollable variable. All markets go up and down and sideways, even the housing market. We don't know with certainty what markets will do, so we, we have to guess. But again, we can't make solid investments decisions on guesswork. Solid assets provide cash flow income streams during any market, up, down, or sideways. Now that we've covered that, let's talk about home ownership just in general. Okay, we've heard all of the reasons why buying a house is a great move. You build equity by renting. You are, quote-unquote, throwing away money. You have tax deductions. Your housing payments will stay stable. If you have a fixed-rate mortgage, other costs like homeowners insurance and property taxes do not stay stable. And you can also settle into a community. You have more freedom to decorate, and you can eventually turn the home into a rental property. Before I start to discuss these and other points, let's deconstruct why we think home ownership is the end-all and be-all. So you have to remember, there are interests that pay millions of dollars for influence in government and corporations that own media outlets. It's called lobbying, campaign contributions, advertising, and marketing. Housing is a $15 billion industry. We've all seen the ads with white picket fences and slogans like the American dream. You know, property ownership is the foundation of society. Private property rights really should be, but that's a discussion for another day. So why did the myth of home ownership become religion, especially in the United States? So I'm a big fan of James Altucher, and he brought up a great point in one of his articles about home ownership. As always, I will have the links in the show notes. He writes that corporations didn't want their employees to have many job choices, so they encouraged them to own homes so that they can't move away and get new jobs. Altucher continues, Never forget that you're being brainwashed by banks, by marketing campaigns, by Fannie Mae, controlled by the government, by your job that is afraid of you having mobility, by governments that love to know where all your assets are when they need to seize them, and so on. I would agree that it benefits the corporations and banks and the government for people to own homes, but as we've discussed in this podcast before, the the world is changing. A lot of corporations and companies have their employees work remotely, so it doesn't really matter where you live so much anymore. The other reason I think people think home ownership is the end-all and be-all is that for generations, people have been told and have been advised to save in their homes because the value will only go up, and it has for most of the time. So it became something that wasn't even really questioned. That's, of course, until 2008. Then we also have to look at the meaning of saving and what is our understanding of quote-unquote saving. So when you produce more than you consume and put the positive difference in a safe vehicle that earns a predictable return, you're saving. There's no downside risk in a savings account. 
It's an extremely safe vehicle. Any market, whether it be housing or financial, go up, down, or sideways, as we've discussed. So you can lose most of your money or capital in both of these markets, or as people found out in 2008 and 2009. Investing, on the other hand, is when you put capital at risk for a bigger return. You should only put money at risk that you can afford to lose in investments. So most people and families are not saving. They are investing without having a solid foundation of savings. So if we're not saving and we're investing, well, we have to look at what great investors do when they invest. Now, great investors look at three key things for assets they try and accumulate. Control, safety, which falls into risk management, and then the economic efficiency of the investment in the areas of taxes, fees, etc. So you have to ask with a home, do you have control, safety, and are you as economically efficient as you can be? To touch on the first point that people will bring up about buying versus renting, building equity and not throwing away money, let's take a quick look at returns and growth. The overall return in housing is 0.4% per year from 1890 to 2004 if you take into account inflation from January 2002 to June 2006, the top or peak of the housing bubble, home values skyrocketed about 71%. By March 2012, they plunged to a level of 10% above where they were a decade earlier. From January 2002 to January 2013, housing prices increased 2% per year. Inflation was 30% for that same time period. Over the long term, home values have outpaced inflation by 1% in the United States. Now, what this information tells me is that you really had to time the market perfectly to have made a profit on your home and not be underwater. So, for instance, if you bought in the 1980s, you did great. And then if you bought in 2002, you did really well as well. So looking at this and looking at the question, are you building equity on your home or throwing away money if you rent? Well, not necessarily. Your equity can fluctuate with the market, or you can lose all of your equity and more in a housing downturn or market crash. So every market is different, and there are many factors that influence the price of your home. Like, for instance, jobs. The more jobs that are available, the more people need to live in that area, and the greater the demand is on the current supply. So if there's fewer jobs, there's less demand. So... You have to ask yourself a question, how much control do you have over the factors that influence the housing market where your home is in? And then on to the second point, how safe do you think it is? Can you manage risk differently besides staying in the home until you eventually have some equity back or at break even if there's a downturn in the market? And then on the third point, let's look at the economic efficiency of home ownership. So the first thing is mortgages. As many of you may know, mortgages are structured in such a way that interest is usually front-loaded. So what that means is in the beginning, you pay more interest than principal. So in the beginning, you really don't pay a lot of the principal down. Most of the money that you pay towards your mortgage goes towards interest. Now, if you refinance, like many people do within the first five years of a mortgage, the amount and the percentage that you would have paid in interest is very, very high. So if you refinance your house within the first five years and keep refinancing it for a lower rate, 
you're really not building up a lot of equity. Now, let's look at taxes. If you're living in a Western country, the chances are that your local town, municipality is broke. Property taxes is the easiest way to get more revenue in since homeowners are stuck and your home and shelter is usually the last thing that you would stop paying. So unless you're living in Croatia, Liechtenstein, Malta, Monaco, Cayman Islands, Dominica, Turks and Caicos, Cook Islands, Fiji, Seychelles, Sri Lanka, Bahrain, Israel, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, you'll never completely own your home, even if it's paid off. Those countries don't have property taxes. If your home's paid off, you still have to pay property taxes. And if you don't pay it, you could lose your home. So you do have to question who really owns your home. The bank owns it when you have a mortgage along with a tax man. So think about it. Even if you want to make improvements to your house usually or add an addition, um, you have to usually get permission through permits from the local town or city in the United States. Other countries might differ, but in the United States, that's usually the case. Also, even if you pay off your home, you still have all the other costs associated with carrying the home. Association fees, maintenance and repairs, insurance, and so forth. So here's a couple of questions also to ponder when you consider paying off a mortgage as well. Payments that you make on the principal of the mortgage does not earn any interest or gross. You can only access a portion of your equity, usually through a home equity line. The equity that you build up in your home is not guaranteed, just like the value we've spoken about that. There is zero tax benefits that come along to having equity in your home. Now, you can deduct mortgage interest from your income taxes, but mortgage rates are as low as they've ever been, so it's really a drop in the bucket these days. And then some people would also say that I don't mind paying taxes because of the great schools. People that rent in that area can send their kids to the same school as well. And that statement is something that people also just keep saying over and over without really questioning it or examining it. You know, for the amount that you're paying in taxes for good schools, you could probably send your kids to a private school and get an even better education. You have to do the calculation. Every situation is different. But that's just something to ponder. Also, property taxes in large cities are really high as well, and the schools in certain areas are horrific. Fees are usually up front and back end when you buy and sell, and it adds up. Sales commissions, closing costs, which if you own a home, you know I could do an entire podcast just on closing costs. As an investment, real estate is also very illiquid. You have to sell it to get your money back. And that is actually one of the reasons why I like real estate investments, because it moves slowly. A lot of the homes that are owned as investment is extremely highly leveraged with 10% down and some even less than that. I see there's now, again, some no money down loans, and that's 100% leverage. Talk about a risky way to invest. Then there's a lack of diversification with all of your eggs basically in two baskets, qualified retirement plans. And your home. Banks, corporations, and the government love these two areas for you to have all of your money in because they know exactly where your money is at. The last point that I'll make too about home ownership is that a lot of people don't know how much this is going to cost you up front. You really don't have any idea how much home ownership is going to end up costing you. How much do you think a $300,000 home will cost you in the next 30 years? 
here's a hint, it's not $300,000. Even with taxes, insurance, homeowners association fees, maintenance, a conservative rule of thumb is to take your mortgage and add 50% of your mortgage on top of that. James Altucher provides a formula of how to really calculate the true cost and compare buying the home versus renting the home. He calculates how much it will cost to own the home, taking your down payment, adding the size of the mortgage, add all the interest payments, then add all of the taxes, which really can't be calculated since taxes will go up in unexpected ways, plus all the maintenance, which also can't really be calculated, plus the opportunity cost of time, that's if you're doing your own maintenance and you run to Home Depot frequently. To calculate how much it will cost to rent a property, you can take all of your rental payments and add it up, minus what you would make buying bonds with the money you would have used on a down payment. Then you have to compare the two and see which one's more. And as Altucher ends off, don't do the choice that adds up to more. So where are we right now in the housing cycle? Well, as I've mentioned before in previous podcasts, 76 million baby boomers are going to retire over the next 18 years and getting older. They're looking to downsize, and many will start to pass away. There will be a significant amount of homes going to be available for sale. The generations following the boomers do not have the buying power to buy all of this inventory up, and the millennials that are bigger than the boomers do not have the money to buy up all the inventory. The most prosperous generation that probably ever lived are going to be forced to take required minimum distributions from qualified retirement plans at 70 and a half as well and withdraw money from retirement plans to live. This is a very important trend to watch for the next 18 years and we'll do an entire podcast on it. I've mentioned earlier that no money down loans are back. Anyone seen the Rocket Mortgage commercials in the Super Bowl this year where you can apply for a mortgage now on your smartphone? Most mortgage companies now also offer a 40-year mortgage. Well, if you can't afford a home with a fixed rate for 30 years, we'll just add another 10 years to put you in that home. Market Watch just ran an article where they talk about the National Mortgage Risk Index, the NMRI, that was co-developed by the American Enterprise Institute by a person called Oliner to assess how sloppy lending standards are now compared to 2007 when they were so sloppy they led to big problems the conservative-leaning think tank performed a stress test on current mortgages. It looks at how all the mortgages being taken out now would perform in a 2007-2008 style financial crisis. Oliner does this by comparing how similar loans back then did after the meltdown. This is a prediction of how many loans would default if the crisis repeated, he said. These results are disconcerting. Oliner found that 12.4% of the mortgage loans taken out recently would default, up from the 11% two years ago. For context, about 19% of 2007 mortgage loans eventually went bust. So to be clear, Oliner is not predicting that 12.4% of recent loans will default in the next recession. After all, the last recession was uncommonly deep. But this does tell us something. Lending standards have slipped so much that we are about two-thirds of the way to the level of sloppiness in mortgage lending that contributed to the financial meltdown, which is not good news. As a reference point, only about 6% of 1990 mortgage loans 
would have defaulted in a 2008 style meltdown. The other thing that I see as well, home prices are up, but incomes are not. So we're getting to that point where the prices of homes might just be out of reach for the amount of income that people earn. This is a really dangerous ratio to look at because if home prices raise too much compared to incomes, homes become really unaffordable. So in 2007, for instance, the median household income in the United States was $57,936, but in 2014, it dropped to $53,657. In 2007, the average home in the United States cost $247,900, but prices increased to $278,800 in January of 2016. Those two polar opposite forces just cannot go on forever. So either people will have to start earning more money or real estate prices will have to come down. The world's top trend forecaster, Mr. Gerald Salente, in episode 19, also mentioned that it is his opinion that housing has peaked. And real estate investor Jack Bosch, in episode 2, also said the market is very overheated. If the market does correct, I don't think we'll have a 2008-style housing crisis at all. It's very different right now than what it was in 2007 in many areas, and we could actually do a whole podcast on that as well, but it's not quite the same. If you are a real estate investor, though, I think we're entering a time with so much opportunity in many areas. One is providing value for the aging baby boomers, and I will do a future podcast on this trend as mentioned and have a future guest on talking about real estate opportunities within this trend to serve and provide value for boomers. To finish our podcast, I will mention that the Wall Street Journal ran an article after the housing crisis called The Housing Illusion. The article discusses that the main function of a home is shelter. We all need a place to live. Now, should you buy a home and will I buy a home again? Yes, I will buy a home again. Who doesn't want a family home that provides so many memories and a place that you can call home? But I know that's not a savings vehicle or an asset. Its primary purpose will be for shelter. Please let me know your thoughts on our Wisdom Wednesday shows. I hope you've enjoyed them. Again, I don't want you to simply agree with what I say. My goal is to challenge your thinking around these topics, and I hope you do further research and form your own opinion. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. You have been listening to the Cash Flow Ninja with your host, MC Laubscher, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Today's show notes and resources are available on our website, CashflowNinja.com. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objective, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.